I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. I'm going to open your Bibles up to Isaiah chapter 52, and we're going to be looking at what I, a lot of people have actually called this passage the heart of the Bible. And there's good reason why they say this. Um, it is an incredibly moving, powerful, prophetic, um, impressive, amazing, I mean, you name it, this passage will blow you away. Isaiah 52 and 53. Actually, we're going to start in Isaiah 52 verse 12. Then we're going to read all the way to the rest of Isaiah 53. And the thing <clears throat> about this, what my concern is going into this amazing prophecy, as we're talking about evidence for the Bible here in this series, um, my concern is that I will understate this prophecy to you. That's my fear. As you dig in, and you keep digging, and you could listen to this whole Bible study, and then you will walk away, go dig in it again, and you'll get much more, because it is such an impressive and deep and powerful passage, and there's so much more than what I'm going to be able to say, or probably even what I'm aware of in this passage. Um, it was written by a guy named Isaiah. It was written around 700 BC, about 700 BC. So we're talking how long before Jesus? Over 700 years before Jesus was walking the earth and doing his ministry, you know, right around 27, 28, 30 AD, right about that time. So <clears throat> over 700 years, all four of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all allude to Isaiah 53. Now I'm going to say 53, but I'm referring to 52 verse, thir- uh, verse 12, all the way through 53. But I don't want to keep saying Isaiah 52, 12 through 53, 13. Like, I don't want to keep saying that. I'll just say Isaiah 53 for the sake of ease. But really, they probably broke the chapter in the wrong spot. Now, the chapter breaks in your Bible are not inspired of God. I mean, the, the authors didn't write. Isaiah wasn't like, and now, chapter 53, verse 1. He just wrote, and we broke it up for ease of communication. It's easy to reference it now that it, there's chapters and verses. Um, this should have probably, Isaiah 53 should have started it in, a, in chapter 52, verse 12. But that being said, it is a le- the reason why is it's a legitimate section of the Bible. It's all about one person and what he does for not only Israel, but for all the people of the earth, what this one person does. This one person is called my servant, my servant, or the servant of God, or some people call him the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Modern rabbis, though, nowadays rabbis, they will typically say that this passage is not about Messiah or Jesus. They will say that this passage is about Israel. And that in Isaiah 53, Israel, the nation, the people of Israel, are the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. That's modern rabbis. Amongst ancient rabbis, can you guess how many ancient rabbis thought that Isaiah 53 was about Israel and not the Messiah? Zero. Not a single one. We don't have a single traditional source of, of what they call Jewish, traditional Jewish source, that says that this passage is about Messiah, but that's the modern consensus amongst especially those who interact with Christians. They will say, no, that's about Israel. <coughs> Excuse me. The, in fact, the first time we read about anyone saying this passage is about Israel, we read about it in Origen. Origen was a, 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 a Christian who wrote basically wrote Christian material or Catholic type material, although it was really before the modern day Catholic church. So I would call it more Christian than Catholic. But he had a conversation in the second century with some Jews of his time, second century, so we're 200 years after Jesus. And excuse me, 100 years after Jesus, second, not third century. And he's having a conversation with these Jews. He's telling them about Isaiah 53. And the Jews respond to Origen by saying, oh, well, that's about Israel. And that's the first time we hear about it. It's in, it's in something Origen says. He goes, some of the Jews I've talked to, you know, they say it means this. What's interesting is that even though there were Jews that thought of the idea of calling it Israel, none of those Jews were the traditional Jews, the authoritative Jews, or the rabbinical Jews, the Jews that were of import and of, of interest, and, the, and that didn't make it into the Talmud. The Talmud was being written at this time. But the Talmud never, that's this Jewish commentary in the Old Testament, it never says that Isaiah 53 is about the nation of Israel. It never once says it. So that's very interesting. So the, the traditional Jews nowadays will say it's about Israel, but that fights against their own tradition that actually says it's not. And there are even some modern Jewish rabbis and heavyweights in Judaism who say, you know what? Our modern guys say this is about Israel, but this is about Messiah. 
And they even kick against the modern guys saying, we can't go with you. You've changed it. Look at our ancient rabbis. They say it's about Messiah. So this is obviously a messianic passage. It literally was not in a single traditional source. It was not called about Israel till a thousand years after Jesus. And then all of a sudden, boom. Oh, now it's about Israel. And that slowly shifted into being the popular opinion. But what's more is this passage, Isaiah 52, 53 here that we're in, it's not the only messianic passage or the passage about the Messiah in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah actually has a bunch of stuff about Messiah, specifically in the last section of the book, which is chapter 40 all the way through chapter 66, the, the last portion of the book. Verse, chapter 42, 49, 50, and 53, that's four places in Isaiah. They all refer to the servant, God's servant. And every one of them is messianic. And every one of them is fulfilled in Jesus. And it, that's cool homework for you. Chapters 42, 49, 50, 53. If you want to check it out on your own. This passage has melted the heart of so many people when they read it and realize that Jesus is the fulfillment of it. I mean, all you have to do is read it to know. Why do modern traditional Jews see it as Israel? Because it's about Jesus. That's the real reason. It's, this is just a hardening of the hearts, and it's a kicking against the goad, so to speak. They're just resisting the truth of it. It's clear. Many people have been saved by it, and I keep saying just read it, so we're just going to read it. Isaiah 52. So open up your Bibles to Isaiah 52, verse 12. And we're going to read all the way through. I'm not going to give commentary on it. Um, all the way through Isaiah 53, verse 12. <clears throat> oh, I, I mix them up. Verse 13 is where we begin. So 52.13, behold, my servant, that's the title, that's the person this is about, shall deal prudently, he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage, his face, was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him, for what they had not been told they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider." Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken." And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many." For he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many. And made intercession for the transgressors. This could be in history no other human being than Jesus Christ. This is so clearly about Jesus. That when you read it to people, they don't believe you that it was written before he existed on the earth. They have a hard time with that. They go, yeah, but that's in the New Testament, right? You go, no. This is, this is written by Isaiah about 700 BC. 
Yet it's clearly about Jesus Christ. And if you read, I mean, that second, that latter part of Isaiah, there's so much about Jesus in here. They call Isaiah the messianic prophet or the prophet who constantly talks about the Messiah, Jesus, this anointed one of God. So now what we're going to do is um, we're going to go through it and we're going to carefully move through this passage and verse by verse and just unpack how detailed, you probably missed a lot of the details as we just plow through it like we did. We're going to unpack those details and see how precise is this prophecy about the Messiah, about Jesus Christ. And we'll answer those objections that the Jews would have with the text showing this couldn't possibly be Israel or really anybody other than Jesus. In the end, you'll be able to say, look, this passage is either about Jesus or it's about nobody. These are our options. (laughs) These are the options we've got. So verse 13 of Isaiah 52, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. This, I believe, is a summary of everything you're about to read. This one verse summarizes the rest of the passage about the servant. First, he's going to be a servant. He comes humbly. He comes in a a slave-type matter. Like Jesus says, I did not come to to be served, but to serve and to offer his life a ransom for many. He comes to be a blessing and a service to all of us. He'll deal prudently, which means he will do what's necessary, what is needed. And this is desperately needed. Mankind needs forgiveness of sin. That's the issue that it deals with, as we already read. He'll do what is right. And then uh, he comes, he serves, he does what's right. And then what happens? He's exalted, extolled, and very high. So he gets exalted, he gets lifted up. This is big talk, big words. Exalted, extolled, very high. I'm sort of saying this a similar thing three different ways to just get across the point that he will be, he will be glorified after this service. Then there's the glorification. And this sort of descent and ascent theology is throughout the new testament it's constantly in there philippians 2 right the god he didn't he uh, jesus he was in, in the form of god but he did not consider it robbery to be equal with god but instead he made himself in the likeness of sinful flesh he came he humbled himself and became a servant he was obedient even to the cross and then what and then because of that obedience because of all that goodness god exalted him and raised him up so that now every knee will bow to him so we have this sort of descent ascent Decent ascent. In fact, this is what the Gospels record. The Gospels record the descent of Christ coming as a servant, serving finally his death, that lowest point of service, and then his resurrection and ascension and glorification and exaltation. And so we have this constantly. Hebrews 1 talks about it. In fact, if you read Hebrews carefully, you'll see it's, it's over and over in the book, this descent ascent, descent ascent. It's in that very consistently. So here it is. That's the summary in verse 13 and then in verse 14 it says just as many were astonished at you so his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men so they were astonished at you they people were astonished at Jesus in fact a, a fun thing to do is do a word search on your computer go up on blueletterbible.org or something like that and you could do a concordance search where you you type a word in and it shows you every time that word is used in the bible well do a word search on the word astonished And look at the times it's used just in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you see how they were constantly astonished at Jesus. It's like everywhere he walked, jaws were dropping. Like, wait, he said, what? He did what? He said, what? And they're just constantly impressed and surprised by him. It's very consistent. His teachings and his miracles, his actions are just constantly astonished by these things. But then also, the most astonishing thing was ultimately the crucifixion. The shocking thing. In fact, it connects it to that. They're astonished. So his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus was marred more than any other human who has ever lived on earth. I mean, if someone fell into a wood chipper, I imagine they were marred more, you know, than Jesus was on the cross. What it means more than any man is it means that when you looked upon him, you were like, what is that? What is that? There was so much swelling and tearing and ripping and all that going on in his body that it was difficult to identify what you were looking at for a second. Your eyes just were like, wait, I don't, I have a hard time looking at that because I'm not sure what to make of it. His visage was marred. He was beaten a minimum of three different times at different locations. He was beaten before Caiaphas, the high priest, where they beat him. They covered his face and they punched him, which means that he couldn't see it coming. And a blow you can't see coming is, of course, the worst one. They took him before Herod, and and in front of Herod, they beat him again. They just pounded on him and beat him. And then finally, he goes before the Romans, and he experiences the beating that we talked about previously, I think last week, when we talked about Psalm 22. 
and this vicious, vicious beating where he was not only physically beaten, but then also the flagellum and all this sort of tearing and ripping on his flesh. And they also, we, we, we get from other passages in Isaiah that the servant, as you read those other chapters, that was chapter 42, 49, 50, and 53. Um, as you read those chapters, you'll see that his beard was ripped out of his face. And so his visage was marred. It was marred. That was a way of being hateful and disrespectful as well as just torturous. Verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. This phrase, sprinkle many nations, is incredibly biblically profound, but most often us Gentiles miss it. What on earth is sprinkling about in a biblical context? It's actually really neat. So when Moses first brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, they were given the law, the book of the law. They were, they were told to construct the tabernacle. And then they went through a ceremony where he cleansed everything, purified everything, where he offered a bunch of sacrifices, took the blood, and he sprinkled the blood on everything. He sprinkled, he sprinkled blood, just sprinkled it on the altar, on the book, on the tabernacle, on the people. And they were all covered, at least in some dots or whatever, up with blood. What is this about? Well, this is, is consistent throughout the law. This idea of getting sprinkled with blood, sprinkle blood on that, sprinkle blood this, sprinkle this. The idea is the blood is the sacrifice of the animal paying for my sins. And then the blood's put on me as in that blood now covers me to deal with my sin. So to a Jewish mind, when you say that this person will be marred more than any man, and this is how he's going to do what? Sprinkle many nations. He's going to cover their sin with his blood. He's going to save them. He's going to offer them forgiveness through his sacrifice. This is so amazing because this is like advanced theology here in an ancient pre-Christ text. This is absolutely amazing. He will sprinkle many nations. And unlike Moses, he won't just sprinkle the Jews. He's going to have this impact on many nations. It'll go across borders. That's why it says kings, plural, will shut their mouths at him for what they had not been told they what had not been told them they shall see and what they had not heard they shall consider. So these kings, after this event happens where he sprinkles many nations, then kings are what? Told about it. So the message of what he's done of sprinkling many nations through this activity of sacrifice is going to be spread all the way up to kings of different countries who never heard about it because they didn't have the Old Testament. They just had messengers show up, say, hey, guess what happened? And then they're telling them about who? Well, about Jesus. This completely fits Jesus. And so kings have heard about him. I mean, no story has spread wider and farther than the story of Jesus Christ. More kings haven't heard uh, any other story than this one. So this message, this story spreads all around, even to Gentile kings. And already we have so many points of comparison to Jesus that you can honestly say, who else has done that? Who else does anyone even claim has done these types of things? Well, nobody that I'm aware of. <clears throat> then in chapter 53, verse 1, it says, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? What we get in chapter 53 is, the, and it's, it's to my knowledge, it's really the only time that we get this in this whole section, is the response that you're supposed to have to the message. Right? Kings will hear something they'd never been told about, but what's the real question now is, but who will believe? So the message goes out across lands, but who will believe? This is, this is to me completely profound. Belief is the central issue regarding this sprinkling of nations and this message of grace and forgiveness. Hello, <laughs> this is the gospel of Jesus Christ right here, not hidden in some special meanings of names, but plainly spelled out in the Old Testament. That blows my mind. It fits Jesus completely. Belief is the central issue of Christianity. Our gospel is what? By faith, you are saved. By faith, just believe, man. Just put your trust in Christ. And what? You will be sprinkled. You will be washed of your sins forever because of what he has done. In other words, this is not a New Testament invention. This, some people think that the, that the New Testament Christians hijacked Jesus and hijacked the Old Testament and twisted it to mean what they wanted. You know how some people say you can make the Bible say what you want. Well, you, maybe you can twist the Bible to try to say what you want, but it still actually has something it actually says. 
And there are people on Earth who care about what it actually says. And I hope that I can count myself as one of them. I actually had a college professor in a logic and critical thinking class when I went to uh, um, community college briefly. And the, the professor told me there that he thought Paul the Apostle basically hijacked Christianity and changed it and made it, he changed it and made it palatable for Gentiles. And that Christianity would have just failed and fizzled out if all it had was Jesus because it had Paul. He changed it and took it to make its own. Now, as a Christian, you're like, wait, what? Like, what? Wait, I don't, where does it say this? And I mean, that's definitely not what the Bible declares. The Bible declares that, that they went out spreading the gospel all over the place, that it was Jesus himself who commissioned Paul, not the other way around, you know. Um, but one of the reasons why is because they'll say Paul's like, like really intelligent book, Romans, is a very intelligent book. And he writes and he writes detailed story about how we are saved and about how it's by faith and it's through grace, about how Jesus became the substitution for us. He went in our place and he died in our place so that we could be washed clean by his blood, so we could be forgiven, that we then get newness of life. And he just gets into the very detailed, what we call theology, the teaching of the Christian faith. And my college professor thought Paul basically made that stuff up. Well, then how is it that I'm finding it here in Isaiah? Even the part about how we receive it by faith, who has believed our report. I think it's, um, it's just, it's neat. It's neat. It is really, really neat. So verse 2. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. The Messiah here is not special. That's, the, that's verse 2. It's all about. He's just not special. He's like a tender plant and a root out of dry ground. A tender plant is a weak plant. He's like, he's weak. He, he appears weak as people see him as he grows up. I mean, in a sense, this is the incarnation. That would be the parallel with Jesus' life. A tender plant, but he's incarnated, but he comes up as like a little baby, a tender plant, you know, he's weak, he's hunted, he goes, they take him into hiding. He comes as a root out of dry ground. That's interesting. Dry ground. I think the parallel here is the fact that when Jesus had come, there had been quite a while of really no major prophet in Israel, no major move in Israel. You know, God had protected Israel for some battles and things like that, but we're not talking about a spiritual revival. And so then Jesus shows up after a long time of nothing, kind of a root, out, a root out of dry ground. So according to the Old Testament, this Messiah is supposed to be a priestly character, a kingly character. But according to Isaiah 53, 2, he's also a nobody. Now, who fits that? <laughs> I think the answer is clear. In fact, it says he has no form or comeliness. Now, those words form refers to beauty, physical beauty, and the word comeliness refers actually to majesty, like a, like a royal majesty. So he doesn't appear physically attractive, and he doesn't have the frills of royalty. So he doesn't show up with like on the white horse. He shows up on the donkey. You know, he's, he's not considered like hoity-toity. That's the word I use that my wife laughs at me for. And I think modern TV and movies get this wrong. There's been a bunch of Jesus movies. Some of you guys have seen them. I, I like them. I love that they do these things. But we have to remember, like, this is an actor and this is not Jesus, you know. But they tend to always get this part wrong. They get the part about him not having the frills of royalty. They understand the humility of Jesus, the humbleness of Christ, and I appreciate that. But they always hire a male supermodel to play Jesus. And according to this passage, Jesus was not attractive. And if we have a clear teaching in the Bible that says he was not this attractive man, then it would actually be more, more appropriate to hire an ugly man to play Jesus Christ. That would be more biblically appropriate. And I think it would be more impactful for those of us who watch it. I think that would be really cool. I hope somebody one day does this. Make a Jesus movie with a Jesus that fits the description in Isaiah. He, like maybe he was short. Maybe it was like, What's impressive about this guy? And then he opens his mouth and he starts speaking the truths of God. And people are just like, whoa. And they're astonished at his teaching, which is what the scripture says. <clears throat> so that we should desire him. It says no, no beauty that we should desire him. So it's unlike Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel. And he was head and shoulders above the rest of the Israelites. He was a big, tall guy. And for some reason, uh, my dad told me this one time. He's, he's six, well, he used to be six foot four. He's getting a little older now. So, he's, so I think he's like six foot two. But anyway, he used to be a you know, real big guy. Now he's a big guy. And he 
asks me, he goes, Mike, because I'm six foot, and he goes, Mike, you know, you're, you're kind of tall. Do, do people ask you to be in leadership positions because you're tall? And I was like, huh? I never had thought of that before. That never occurred to me before. And I thought, I hope that's not why I'm a pastor. <laughs> hey, tall guy, you, you teach. Now, um, I hope that's not the reason. But I thought it was interesting because when he was in the, in the military, they kept asking him to lead different things because he's six foot four. Or at least that was his impression of it. They probably saw some other qualities that were in him, I imagine. But that was what it was with Saul. Saul was this big, tall king of Israel. And they're like, yeah, we can get behind this guy. Look, where is he? Standing in the crowd right there, man. He's the guy that's head and shoulders above everybody else. And so he seems impressive. Like, oh, we can follow this guy. End up being a lousy king. <laughs> you know. And then Jesus shows up. And who is he? He's the opposite. He, he, he appears meek. He doesn't appear impressive. It doesn't, you don't look at him and think, wow. Something amazing is about to come out of his mouth. But then it does. And I think that's really neat. Now, there are, because of this, this contrast, like the, the, the king, the Messiah king who will deliver Israel from their enemies all around, versus this suffering servant of Isaiah and other passages like Psalm 22, where we're looking at a suffering Messiah. There are many Jews who believed that there were two Messiahs because they couldn't reconcile. How do you have a suffering Messiah and a ruling Messiah? And they thought there were two messiahs. And their mistake was that they didn't see that there aren't two messiahs. There's one messiah. There are two comings. He comes once to suffer and comes once to reign. It's just that he has a life that lasts longer than 10 minutes. <laughs> and he does both of those things. <clears throat> so there were, um, according to them, they thought two messiahs. I don't know if this is a terribly popular opinion now. But back in the day, it was a little bit more so. They called one the messiah, the son of David, and one messiah, the son of Joseph. And one was the suffering and one was the reigning messiah. And, um, and they tend to, tend to take a little bit of liberties with the text that I'm actually not willing to take. Verse 3 then, it says, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Despised and rejected by men. That's a strong emphasis of verse 3. He was rejected, he was despised. It is the iron, ironic thing that the Messiah that God predicted over and over again in the Old Testament shows up on time and the Jews don't receive him. But yet, that's what it's predicting. Here it's predicting, we did not esteem him. Isaiah is a Jew. He is writing to Jews. And he says, we did not esteem him. And that's one of the reasons why you know this suffering servant's not Israel. Because you can't say Israel didn't receive Israel. And Israel despised and rejected Israel. This starts to not make any sense. It's about an individual who was rejected by them. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. So he knows hardship. He did not have smooth, easy living, and they hid. He will not get the respect he deserves from the Jews. He didn't get it from the Gentiles either. Um, he was rejected by both and ultimately crucified. This is radically profound. That a, To think about this, like here's one of the evidences of God writing this. I mean, a Jewish prophet writing to the Jewish people about their future deliverer who they will reject. This is not how other religions do things. But it reads like real history. Like this is just what happened. Absolutely amazing to me. Now, this some of this stuff is past tense. He is despised and rejected by men. That's present tense. And then a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and we hid, past tense, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. So we see the future tense, and then present tense, and then past tense kind of mingled together a little bit. And that's just sort of the language of prophecy. Sometimes this happens in the prophetic, because it's sort of looking at the event. And I don't know the whole reason why, but it just seems to happen that way. But if you read um, back in 52 verse 13, it says, that the servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled very high. So then it's future tense there. In 53 verse 2, it's future tense. He shall grow up before him as a tender plant. So he's going to grow up and he was despised. It's just sort of the timeless nature of prophecy that it's sort of uh, bouncing around. Almost as though um, we're trying to reveal that this is just uh, God is outside of time speaking here from his uh, supernatural knowledge. And then verse 4 Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Our griefs and our sorrows were carried or borne by him. These griefs and sorrows, I should mention, in a biblical sense, if you're looking at Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, these griefs and sorrows are caused by one common 
denominator, sin. Sin causes the grief and sorrows that are on this planet Earth. Either my sin or the sins of others, but it always comes back to that. The world has fallen from the moment of Adam and Eve. All creation came into this fallen state where there's bad things that happen. But also, I mean, the harsh that's been done to me and the harsh that I've done to others, this all connects back to this concept, his griefs and sorrows. So he carries these, the sin and the result of sin, on his own back. He's bearing this. Now, this is man's greatest need. I often want someone to fix my broken heart. And I, I do, but you know what? God actually doesn't say he wants to fix our broken hearts. He says he wants us to have broken hearts. That's really different, isn't it? The Bible uses the word broken heart to mean a heart that is broken like a horse that is broken and now willing to submit. When you break a horse, oh, we broke the horse. Now the horse will, will go where I tell it to go. And God's like, you need to have a broken heart. A heart that will be led by me instead of by other things. Because the real issue of man isn't like, Lord, I need someone to hold my hand. I mean, I like that. <laughs> that's good. It's not a bad thing. That's good. But that's not my deepest issue. In fact, if you were to ask people, what are your deepest needs and have them fill out a form and just go around America taking a survey, how many of them would say forgiveness of sin is my deepest issue? But yet that is my deepest issue because that's the thing that gives me what? Eternal life. They might say paying my bills, getting my car repaired. You know, these are important, but by comparison to sin, nothing. I need my sins forgiven. That's my big need. That's my deep, deep need. And this is what he carries on his back. But according to that verse, it looks to the people as though God was striking this man. Now, this is right there in the text. Let me read to you Matthew 27. I'm going to read verses 41 through 44. So here we're, we're going to go to the passage where they're reviling Jesus because what? It, we esteemed him stricken of God. We thought he was carrying my sorrows, but I thought he was suffering for his own wickedness. That's what they're saying. So Matthew 27, verse 41. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said he saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he's the king of Israel, let him come down, or let him now come down from the cross, and he will, we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. And like Psalm 22, speaking of the same event, we get the idea that the suffering servant will suffer for other people's sins, but the very people he is suffering for will think he's suffering because he's evil. And so they revile him. Obviously, obviously you're on the cross. You must be bad. God wouldn't let bad things happen to good people. Like, I'm so glad he did. I'm so glad he let bad things happen to the best person ever so that I could be saved. All right, verse 5, he says, but he was wounded. Here's, here's what. Here's what we, we thought he was esteemed. We esteemed him stricken by God. But the reality in verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Transgression just means sin. Iniquity just means sin. It's a specific types of sins, but it's just sins. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. That word wounded in verse 5 could also be translated pierced. I find that very interesting. It could also legitimately be translated as pierced. Let me read to you another prophecy, just a little bonus one today. Although I'm trying to stay in just Isaiah because it's so easy to bounce around. But Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10 has a prophecy about this. And it says, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. You even get the mixing of the pronouns like we're, like we're getting a, a phantom of the Trinity appearing in the passage. They'll look on me whom they've pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for, you know, the me and the him get mixed um, and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. And so this is speaking of Messiah, that he's going to be pierced. Well, here we are. He was wounded or pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The reason for the wounds on Christ, the physical wounds, was my spiritual sins. That was the reason. And the result, the result of this is the chastisement for our peace. Now, peace here is talking about the opposite of being at war. Not a ceasefire. A ceasefire is you're still at war. You have a ceasefire. But peace, where you're like, hey, we're friends now. 
And I'm at war with God when I sin against him. Every sin's like a slap in his face, calling for wrath. But then Jesus takes my sin upon his back. I mean, this is just the theology of the New Testament. This is it right here, 700 years before Christ. And so <clears throat> we're at war until we have Christ. And then what, the chastisement? He was chastened for my peace. I gain peace with God. This is literally a detailed account of what we call, in our fancy theology now, substitutionary atonement. That's two fancy words. You know what substitute means? Atonement, just break it down. This is a fun way to know what it means. At one meant. <laughs> like we're now one. We've been brought together. He became, became a substitute, died for my sins, that I might become one and connected with God again and become at one again with him. These are stripes that heal. By his stripes, we are healed. Now that healing, we have to say, is connected to sin issues primarily. But I do think it, in a sense, it extends to all issues. His stripes. Now, look at this. In this passage, we have the wound, which could be translated pierced. We have bruised. And then we have stripes. These describe three different types of painful things that were done to Jesus when he was crucified. He was pierced with nails. He was bruised with beatings. And he was striped with the Roman flagellum. In detail. I think it's just, it's so amazing. This healing comes from those stripes. Now, can you believe this was written before Jesus was born? Some people don't. Some people think it was written after Jesus was born. But God has a way of like, I don't know, sort of preparing for those people. <laughs> so that when they come up with their skepticisms, sure enough, evidence shows up in tow to show the truth. And so in 1948, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls in Israel. This proved massive, lots of things, wonderful things. We could spend weeks and weeks just talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls. But here's the one thing to know. There was a whole copy of Isaiah. And before this, there were some who claimed, Christians, you just shoved Isaiah 53 into Isaiah to make it look like Jesus was there. Which, of course, proves how obvious it is that this is about Jesus. They said, you just shoved Jesus into Isaiah 53 for your own agendas in your own Christian ways. But you know what? In that passage of Isaiah, the, the scroll of Isaiah they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which dated to over 100 years before Jesus, what did they find after Isaiah 51? They found 52, and they found 53. <laughs> and so that, there's, just, there's just no argument that this isn't prophecy. There's just no, no way around it. Uh, verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is like the book of Romans. In fact, Romans writes from this passage to establish the theology. It feels so much like the New Testament. We're all sinners. We've every one of us turned to follow our own ways instead of God's ways. And God has taken all of those sins that all of us have done and has put them on him, on Jesus, on our suffering servant. Wow. This, I can't do justice to this passage. If, unless you're like, your head hurts from the expanding of your brain, you know what I mean? Of, as we hear this, then I haven't done justice to the passage. This is prophecy proving that Jesus is the Messiah spoken of in the Old Testament. This is factual evidence to show us that there is a God and that he has spoken through the word of God, the Bible, and that there's a savior who can forgive us of our sins, our deepest needs, and not just some sins, but every sin. We've all sinned. We've all gone. And all of our iniquity has been put on him. It's, it's the gospel right here, 700 years before Jesus shows up. And in verse seven, it says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He opens not his mouth. This doesn't mean that he was silent like he was mute. Like he never spoke his whole, you know, obviously not. that's not the case. What does this mean? Well, the lamb is going to the shearers or to the slaughter, and it just goes on as though this is just what I'm supposed to do. It just shows up, and it's almost like, if I mean, it doesn't know what's coming. Lambs probably don't know much of anything, but it's just going on like nothing's wrong. And that's the idea. Let me read to you how Jesus defended himself in two of the court rooms that he was in right before he was crucified. They brought him to court. They tried to convict him of crimes. So here he is before the Jews in Matthew 26. It says, And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas the high priest. 
where the scribes and elders were assembled. So he goes to the Jews. But Peter followed him at a distance and uh, at the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. In a Jewish court, you have to have two different witnesses who agree. So you bring one witness in, and you try to get him to say bad stuff about Jesus. Then you bring another one in, try to get him to say, oh, but it didn't line up. Okay, we have to throw that testimony out. So it's hard. It's Jewish courts were supposed to be designed to keep it hard for people to lie. It's like the opposite of our courts nowadays. <laughs> well, um, <clears throat> but if they found none. Verse 60, they found none. Nobody, no false witness. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at least two false witnesses came forward finally. And they say, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. An actual twisting of his words. He didn't quite say that. And the high priest arose and said to him, do you answer nothing? What, it, what is it these men testify against you? But Jesus, he could easily say, actually, I said, you can destroy the temple and I'll rebuild it. That's what he actually, he didn't say that though. He doesn't even correct them. It says, but Jesus kept silent. He kept silent. Why? Because even though there was no right reason to condemn him, he needed to be condemned so that we could be forgiven. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, it is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man, referring to himself, sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Which was true. That wasn't a crime. <laughs> that was just reality. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, he's spoken blasphemy. He rips his clothes. What further need do we have of witnesses? They just want to subvert justice. Look now, you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? And the crowd answers and says, he is deserving of death. So then they spat in his face and beat him. Others struck him with the palms of their hands. That was Jesus before the Jews. Then I have a three-verse account I want to read you with Jesus before the Romans. It's in Matthew 27, verses 11 through 13. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. So he's convicted amongst the Jews by being, what? The Christ, the Son of the living God. He's convicted by the Romans of being, what? The king of the Jews, which was just truth. Those weren't crimes. <laughs> and while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But Jesus didn't answer. So again, he's accused, but he offers no defense. So this scripture fits Jesus again. So he is accused, but offers no, no defense in court. You try that. That, that requires a lot of self-control. <laughs> Verse 8 of Isaiah 53. He was taken from prison in judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. Prison and judgment, which means his death was a judicial sentence. Not only from the Romans, not only from the Jews, but from God himself. Jesus died judicially in our place. This is what Romans teaches us. Clearly the Bible declares this. This is what he did. He died judicially in our place. Substitution for us to suffer. He was cut off from the land of the living. That phrase cut off is a Hebrew term that means killed. That's just what was used. It was a, in fact, it was a, specifically a legal term. If someone committed a crime that was worthy of death, then they were to be cut off from the land of the living. That's the phrase they would use. And they, but they would stone them. Christ, though, he, uh, he died at Roman hands. He was crucified, just like Psalm 22 declared. This um, is done for the transgressions of my people. So again, he dies for sin. It's repeating itself here. This is clearly Jesus Christ, or it is nobody. Who else on earth is even a candidate for Isaiah 53? Some, some of you, when you become parents, you might feel like this is you. This is, this is, no, this is not, not quite, not quite. Verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he'd done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. His grave is with the wicked. Jesus was crucified between two criminals, and there he died. With the wicked. But he was with the rich at his death. This seems contrary, right? Well, Joseph of Arimathea, he shows up to take the body of Jesus. This rich man we read about in the New Testament. Historians like this, we talked about this in the study I did on the evidence for the resurrection of Christ. But historians love this because it's embarrassing to the followers of Jesus that they weren't there but instead, this rich guy, nobody knows, Joseph of Arimathea shows up and takes Jesus and he takes him into this new tomb. But this, in other words, 
is good history. And even people who don't have faith in the Bible would go, yeah, that really happened. So we have, again, another fulfillment. This is Jesus with the rich at his death. Some people would say, well, I think the New Testament just made up all that stuff. I think everything the New Testament says about Jesus fulfilling these prophecies is completely made up. Well, there's several problems with that. We'll get into details in this you know, later on in weeks. I'm not going to try to do it tonight, but there's a couple things I'll just mention. One, the New Testament is testable. There's so many claims of historical facts, especially in the work of Luke, that we can actually dig in the ground and prove it true. Luke talks about who was the governor over here and who was the prefect over here and who did this over there, and we dig it up and boom, it's true. How is it that in every way we can test, Luke is entirely correct, but you're going to assume he lies about everything else? Yeah, somebody's not being intellectually honest at that point. Um, Another reason why the New Testament didn't make this up, it's unreasonable to think that those who would suffer and die for their faith were just joking. We're just faking it, making it up. And you ultimately have three op- uh, two options, excuse me. Either Jesus is the Messiah and he truly fulfills these bookends of Isaiah versus the New Testament, you know, he's truly the Messiah or there is a massive centuries-long conspiracy incorporating hundreds and thousands of individuals over hundreds and hundreds of years to try to make it look like Jesus is the Messiah. The problem with conspiracies is they're very hard to keep quiet. They're very, I mean, look at the weird, some weird Masonic stuff that you guys can read about. How do we know that it's weird? Because it's very hard to keep that kind of stuff quiet. <laughs> it really is. Um, but you have a massive conspiracy theory, in which case I think that's a miracle from God there. <laughs> I don't even know how you hold that kind of conspiracy, especially as we continue through our evidence for the Bible series. All right, verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, his offspring. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now this should blow you away. First, let me deal with this issue. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. God's like happy to bruise him. That word actually means like it was God's will. It was the will of God. There's a lot of debate sometimes about who's responsible for Jesus's death. Well, primarily the person responsible is God. Like God orchestrated and designed this thing. And if you're going to be like, you know, I want to come against this group of people because of the because of Jesus's death, or um, that's just usually an excuse for some kind of stupid thinking or racism or something like that. Um, if if you're looking for blame, ultimately put it to the Father. It pleased the Lord to put him uh, to bruise him, and the blame thing ultimately is totally short sighted because my sins were on his back too, and that's what required him to go to the cross. So we're all we all have equal share in in uh, Jesus's death. But also, that word pleased seems to mean to me um, appeased, or it, it made okay. It made the, the fathers going, okay, now I'm pleased. Now, you sinners can be forgiven because I, it pleased me. That, that was enough. That paid the price. So he's put him to grief. Uh, when you make a soul an offering for sin, after he's an offering, number he's cut off from the land of the living. What does that mean? Death. But then after he's an offering for sin, and sin offerings always died, there was no sin offering in Israel that lived to tell the story afterwards, right? You died. Then after death, he's going to what? See his seed and prolong his days. That is the resurrection. This is Isaiah 53 prophesying of the resurrection of Christ. After death, he will see his seed and what? Prolong his days. He'll have more days after death. This is days of life. This is clearly the resurrection. Now, at some point in your studying of prophecy, you're going to wonder, where in the Old Testament does it talk about the resurrection of Jesus? Well, Isaiah 53 is one of those places. Um, Psalm 22 as well. Verse 11, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Another reason why this passage can't be Israel's, because Israel's never been the righteous servant. They were the backsliding they were, they were, he called them Sodom sometimes uh, because of the things they were doing. But they were never the righteous servant. And he will justify many. He will justify many. The, again, the doctrine of justification. Let me read to you 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It speaks of this justification. It says, For he made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He justified many. 
The wrath of God was poured out and exhausted at the cross. And anyone who has Christ, there is no wrath for you. That is relieving. He'll justify many, 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 a whole lot. Lots of minis. <laughs> this is New Testament theology, or maybe I should put it this way. New Testament theology is Old Testament theology. It's the same stuff. It's just now been fulfilled. Verse 12. <clears throat> Verse 12, we've made it. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many. It just keeps repeating that phrase, that idea, transgression, sins, iniquities, all on Christ, and made intercession for the transgressors. He died as a substitutionary atonement, and then he is exalted. He'll divide portion with the great and the strong, and he'll be lifted up high and exalted. Jesus is now reigning and ruling. So this is, again, the descent and ascent. It's that descent ascent thing going on. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. This is clearly and provably written before the fact, and it is clearly and provably all about Jesus. So the only question left is the question that was asked in verse 1 of chapter 53. Lord, who has believed our report? For anyone who's hearing this, whether you're in the room here or if you're watching it on YouTube or something, you hear this and either Jesus is the Messiah or there's the world's most massive conspiracy and unmanageable and unimaginable, unmanageable conspiracy has happened or Jesus is true. In which case, your personal faith and trust in him is what turns the key to unlocking the grace and the flood of the goodness of God into your life. And there is ultimately no intellectual reason to continue doubting or resisting. I, I'm loving this series we're doing on evidence for the Bible. I think it's really exciting. I just can't wait to keep going. We're going to stick on prophecy about Jesus for a little bit, and we'll just keep going through that and talking about it. Um, if you guys have specific questions you want to make sure I address as I'm doing this series, please let me know, and I'll try and incorporate that at some point. And um, yeah, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for the suffering servant, our Savior, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The one who came in our place, who bore our griefs and our sorrows, who took our sin upon himself. He, he was made to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Lord, you take us from wicked, straying sinners to righteous seeds of God through Jesus Christ. And we thank you so much, Lord. We do our part, Lord. We believe. We trust in Christ. We believe he died for our sins. We believe he rose from the dead. And we trust in your holy word. We ask, Lord, as we dig into your word and we continue doing this series, that you would give the guidance of your wisdom and of your truth and that you would direct us as we do it. And we ask, Father God, that um, even for, we just want to pray for anybody who watches these things up on YouTube. We ask, Lord, that their hearts would be soft to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that their eyes would be opened to the truth of God's word and that old arguments and old inaccurate complaints against God or the Bible would fall away from their eyes and they would just soften their hearts to you. In Jesus' name, amen.